0: The crew of the Golden Hind is spent, worn out, exhausted. Two years ago, in 1577, they set sail from Plymouth, a fleet of five ships ready to cross oceans. In the Atlantic, they endured an attempted mutiny, tense encounters with indigenous islanders, and weeks of drought, praying for rain to slake an increasingly desperate thirst. Two of the smaller ships were broken up within the first year to consolidate the fleet. After navigating the fearsome straits at the tip of South America, another is lost in a Pacific storm, its crew drowned. A fourth ship went off course in a fog bank. Unable to find its partner, they've turned back for England, leaving the Golden Hind alone, halfway through a circumnavigation of the globe. Along the western coast of North America, they plunder Spanish ships and raid their ports, rich with treasure. But now the Golden Hind's hull is leaking. They dearly require safe harbor to make repairs and refresh supplies. For eight weeks, they chart their course northward, laying claim to coastal lands in the name of Queen Elizabeth. Only one question as they go, where are they?
1: In the summer of 1579, the galleon, the golden hind, formerly known as the pelican, made landfall in what was noted as a fair and good bay. But where exactly had Drake landed? Believe it or not, this is a question that continues to vex historians, anthropologists, archaeologists, and many others to this day, just as it agitated people in 1580 when Drake returned to England. Despite becoming only the second expedition to circumnavigate the earth after Magellan's voyage in 1522, we've got a podcast on this by the way, and the first to return with its commander, Drake's story is not one that is easily charted. To understand the problems and the controversies in this incredible story, I'm pleased to welcome Melissa Darby. Working for over 40 years as an archaeologist and historian in Oregon and Washington State, Melissa is a noted authority on the ethno-history of the native people of Western Oregon and is currently a visiting research scholar in the Department of Anthropology at Portland State University. Melissa joins us to discuss her work, Thunder Go North, The Hunt for Sir Francis Drake's Fair and Good Bay, which I can tell you is a wonderful example of meticulous and painstaking investigation, incorporating all manner of evidence, including ethnographic material, to unpick the long-standing controversy over where Drake landed in 1579. Now, we're going to talk today about a famous journey made by Francis Drake. Doesn't get his knighthood until he returns from it. And although some people may be familiar with him. Can you remind them, tell us a bit about him and tell us why Elizabeth
2: I chose him to lead this voyage? Francis Drake was a sometime pirate. He was a merchant tradesman who worked with his uncle, William Hawkins, and they went to the Caribbean and raided ports there and did some sort of trade by force. But Queen Elizabeth, at this point, really needed someone to go on the West Coast of America and look for lands that were unclaimed by any Christian prince. And so this was a secret mission because she was still at peace with Spain. And so she sent Drake out with a couple of goals. One was to reconnoiter for the Northwest Passage if it existed. John Dee thought it did, and he gave Drake some papers and some instruments in order to try and measure latitude and to figure out where the Northwest Passage might have been, which would have been a way home with the wind at their back if he had found it. It ended up that they didn't find it, and they had to cross the Pacific. So Drake's voyage became the second circumnavigation of the Earth, the first by an Englishman, but it was a secret mission. When he got back, the crew was sworn to secrecy. There was no parades or celebration, and all the papers and his account and his maps and all of that were kept by Queen Elizabeth under lock and key, and they've been lost. We don't have those to this day.
1: So, it was intended in part at least as a voyage of discovery then?
2: Yes. Walsingham, Hatton, and Queen Elizabeth really wanted to figure out if they could settle, make a colony on the west coast of America. And that was one of his goals. The other goal was to harry the Spanish. Drake had a long standing vendetta against the Spanish. So, he wanted to capture as much gold and silver. As possible. And I'm sure the Queen was aligned with that as well. It was a multifaceted, multi gold voyage. And I don't know if it was ever really intended for him to circumnavigate the globe. But he knew after he went through Magellan Strait that he couldn't go back that way. The Spanish were on his trail. And so He crossed the Pacific, he traded for spice in the Spice Islands, and that was a big success for him, and then rounded the horn and went back and landed in Plymouth. Even before he got off the Golden Hind, a man rode out and said, you are in the Queen's bad graces because of all the depravities you did against Spain, and they're asking for restitution. So they kept this pretty quiet. But the Queen, a few days later, said, come join me in London. Bring me some examples of your wares. You have nothing to fear. So he spent six hours in her audience, which is quite a long time. And they went over his maps and his account. And it was a great success for England, though they couldn't publicize it. So it's interesting that we've got
1: this sense of a commission by Elizabeth, which isn't for the reasons we've remembered the voyage, that is being hushed up when he came back in various ways. And as you've alluded to, Spain and Portugal were very much the dominant players in exploration at this time. Why did the Queen and her ministers decide that this was the time to challenge them and then to deny it?
2: (laughs) Well... I think it was because they saw that Spain and Portugal were enriching themselves on the minerals and other commodities in the New World, and they didn't want to be left behind. And over the previous 10 or 15 years, they had been building up their fleet of fast, swift ships, that could outmaneuver the Spanish. And so this was intended to explore, to find places to settle and to find minerals. I mean, one of the things Queen Elizabeth asked Drake to do is look for red dye, commodities like that. And so they also wanted a market for their wool. They had lost Calais a few years before and they had all this wool and commodities made of wool, blankets and so forth. That they needed to find markets for. And so that was one of the things that Haklut mentioned later is that they were seeking markets for their commodities as well. The
1: central focus of your work concerns where Drake landed in 1579, which is some 18 months into his journey. So can you briefly outline his voyage up until that point and any significant encounters along the way?
2: When they left Plymouth, the crew thought they were heading to Alexandria to load a cargo of currents. It was five ships, and the Golden Hind at that time was called the Pelican. It wasn't changed until they got to Magellan Strait. So Magellan Strait was their first big objective. When they got there to the mouth of Magellan Strait, they renamed the ship the Golden Hind after. Christopher Hatton, who had just been appointed to the Privy Council. He was knighted a few days after Drake left, I believe. I'm not sure of the date, but Christopher Hatton was a big sponsor. So they get to Magellan Strait. They get through it mostly successfully, and then the wind starts blowing when they get to the other side. And for 52 days, they're blown around. A ship, captained by winter, turns around and heads back because it's just too scary, I suppose. They lose the Marigold, one of the smaller ships. And by the time they get north along the Chilean coast, Drake is alone. All of the ships that he was with, his sailing partners, they're gone. So we have what's now the Golden Hind, and they stop at this island called Mocha Island for water and supplies. And the next day as they're loading their water barrels, the natives come running out of the forest and they shoot arrows at Drake and his men. One man dies, Drake gets an arrow in his cheek. Diego, his black manservant gets several and almost dies. He dies later of his wounds, but much later. And so Drake says, okay, don't fight back. We're just gonna get back and get in the ship and head out because he believed that the Spanish had taught these natives that Europeans were evil and bad and that they'll hurt them. So Drake wanted to bring a sense of the English are different and we are not as cruel as the Spanish. And so that was one of his goals is to really let the natives know that there's a difference between the Spanish and the English. So they sail up the coast of Chile and they trade for fish and trinkets and they exchange a few things for the people along the way. Then the Spanish understand that they're there. So Drake realizes that he's got to put the gas on. He goes farther north, starts capturing ships, looting towns and the spanish are at his heels the notice of him is not at the towns to the north so then he captures off of the coast of panama this huge treasure ship one of the big spanish galleons and it takes two days to load all the silver and the gold i mean they ballast the golden hind with silver bars it was that much treasure that he had they had Peruvian emeralds that were as long as a man's finger. They had bags of pearls and so many pearls that Queen Elizabeth used him in one of her dresses. So that was their big goal to get this treasure. So Drake headed north, they had captured a ship. So they had a tender with Intello's bark. We don't know the name of the ship. We just refer to it as the owner. So then they started leaking. They started leaking off the coast of Panama. And they wanted to reconnoiter for the Northwest Passage, so they had to go way out into the Pacific to catch the gyre that would swing them back into the West Coast. You can't just sail north from Mexico. The winds would prevent that, so they had to go out to sea. So, this is a debate that we're having, but I believe that he came in at 48 degrees north, which is up by Vancouver Island, and spent a few days reconnoitering for the Northwest Passage or the Strait of Anion, And then they were leaking and they needed to find a bay. Now, if you've ever been to the West Coast, you know that safe harbors and bays are pretty rare. And this was uncharted territory. The Spanish hadn't been up this far. The Native Americans on this coast had never seen a ship like this, as far as we know. So I think they did some close-in reconnaissance and tried to find a bay. They found a harbor that they went in, but it was too rough. So then they sailed out, and then a few days later, they found what they celebrated as their fair and good bay. And they went in, and a Native American paddled out to them and was singing and chanting and then gave him some gifts. And Drake jumped down into the little rowboat that was next to the Golden hind and tried to give this Native American some gifts, and the Native American wouldn't have anything to do with it and paddled back. So then they careened the ship and repaired it, but every three days they had a meeting with the Native Americans. They would come and meet them.
1: So I want us to unpack all of this a lot more, because this, of course, is the heart of your work, and it's the controversial matter of where Drake landed. Can we talk about what people thought before you did your work? Where was Drake thought to have landed to repair his ship?
2: Well, Haklut yeah. wrote the official account in Principal Navigations, and he said that they landed at 38 degrees north, which is around the Bay Area, the central California coast. And the official account carries a lot of weight, Right. But this was a censored account, a piece of propaganda, if you will. And it was a really brief account of where Drake went. It was only a few pages compared to some of the other important voyages of the time in principal navigations. And so in the 1850s, here in California and America, there was a gold rush. And so... They aligned themselves with Drake because he's the golden sun. He was one of the first Europeans to land in what was then California. And so California celebrated him, and they named a freeway after him and a hotel and a bay, and there's a statue. And so that was celebrated. The idea that Drake was further north came up in 1915 with the work of an archaeologist, anthropologist woman named Zelia Nuttall, who was a woman. And so she was sidelined at the time. She tried to get published. She couldn't get published. She was an important scholar and she had done quite a bit of work in Mexico. And she was the first one to come up with this theory that Drake was further north, but it wasn't accepted. And so still now the dominant paradigm is that Drake was on the central California coast, around Drake's Bay. And that is certainly what I have always heard until now. And then you've also
1: got this 20th century hoax, which maintains the California landing theory.
2: When Zelian et al. was really promoting her idea, she was being suppressed by another faculty member at UC Berkeley, Herbert Bolton. And he was a member of the Native Sons of the Golden West, which was as patriotic California organization, it still exists. And they, every year they fly the flag of Drake, the Queen Elizabeth standard in a ceremony. And so they just couldn't lose Drake. And so he being the blustery promoter kind of guy he was, he decided that he was going to suppress Celia and all. So this is my theory. He concocted a plate of brass that said, I, Sir Francis Drake, landed here and claimed this land for Queen Elizabeth. And he was going to put it out, and this is my theory, if Zelia Nettall really got her theory out there. Well, they suppressed her. It was a joggernaut. She took her ball and bat and went back to Mexico. But then this other woman, Eva Taylor from Birkbeck College in London, found even more documents than Zelia had, and she followed up on Zelia Nettall's work She found a diary from the chaplain on the follow-up voyage and the official account that Queen Elizabeth wrote, Drake's instructions for the plot of the voyage. And so she published these in the late 20s and 30s, and it was incredible. And she even figured out that some of the words that Drake recorded of the language of the Native Americans may be Chinookan or a Chinook. Language, which is on the Northwest Coast, not in California. So, all of the Drake promoters in California and Bolton, who was still around, they planted this is my theory the plate of brass where it would be found sooner or later. And it was found. And because he had been telling his students for years, go out to Marin County, we know there's a plate of brass out there. Sounds fishy to me, but anyway, so they found this plate of brass. They brought it to Bolton. He immediately held it as an authentic artifact of Drake and it shut down all the whole theory that Drake was further north and Eva Taylor's work came to nothing.
0: Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget?
1: twice a week, every week. Subscribe now and follow me on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. So now let's think about this alternative that women scholars were promoting from an early stage and which you are now flying the flag for. What is the contemporary And modern evidence that supports such a notion. And I'm particularly fascinated by this ethnographic evidence that you've drawn on, which helps explain the title of your book.
2: Well, when Drake landed, they had 10 weeks with the Native Americans and the Native Americans gave them food and vice versa, and they helped explore inland and maybe even into the Willamette Valley. And so Drake became familiar with the Native Americans. And so he and Francis Fletcher, the chaplain who also wrote an account of the voyage, they described the Native Americans as having, their houses were dug round, dug into the ground, and they were covered with planks. Well, here on the Northwest coast, the main type of architecture are plank houses. But on the California coast, you have grass huts with willow structure holding them up, and they're not semi-subterranean. Though still on the California coast, ceremonial houses or dance houses sometimes were that way. But when the Spanish came in 18 years later into what is now Drake's Bay, where everyone thinks Drake was, they said, oh, the houses here, the people are in these Grass huts with willow structures. And this doesn't sound like what Drake described. So also the basketry that Drake describes fits the Coos people on the Oregon coast. The foods they ate. And this is where I really got intrigued because my thesis in 1996 was on a route called Wapato. And one of its Chinook jargon names is Peta or Pota. And Drake said, they're eating this root, they call it peta, And I was like, God, my gosh, that could be the root that I've been studying for years. And when I read the account, he said that you can eat peta raw or cooked, and it's good in cakes, and the cakes you make with it are called saplil. And that is exactly how the Chinookans describe the bread that they make with this root. The words were too close to be a coincidence. That's my feeling. So there were a lot of these ethnographic things. And when Drake showed up, his calling card was to blow off his cannons. And these people had never seen a ship like that. They'd never heard cannon. They thought, and this is my theory, they thought that Drake was their god of thunder. And their god of thunder would get mad at them if they don't treat fish the right way because thunder is the god of fishes. So if they throw the guts into the fire instead of the creek, or if they mishandle fish in any disrespectful way, thunder will come and will get you. And so they thought thunder, Drake, was here to hurt them or to punish them because they remember they dropped a fish the other day or something. And so they treated Drake with such veneration and they would burn sacrifices. They would right in front of them burn their valuables, their feathers, their necklaces, their shell necklaces and tobacco bundles and so forth. And Drake was like, it's OK, I'm human. And they made a point of showing the natives that they're humans and that they eat and they are just people like anybody else. But the natives just couldn't get beyond that. But I think it's pretty strong evidence. These cultural and ethnographic things that Drake observed, I think, are more aligned with what we see on the Oregon coast than on the California coast, by far.
1: That's fascinating. And those details really add up. I wonder what you would say to someone who's observed that we've finally sort of defended the Mexica, the Aztec, and Moctezuma from thinking that Cortez was a god. We finally suppressed that myth that it didn't actually happen. And now we're turning to say another native people took another European to be a god. Is that problematic? How would you handle that, do you think?
2: I think it is a little problematic. When I wrote the book, I ran the manuscript by all the tribes on the Oregon coast and said, give me your comments, because I knew as an anthropologist, this could be really important to them, and they should know this before it gets published. They don't have any cultural memory of this, and so there are individuals that are really fascinated by it. And there are others who just don't buy it. And so I think it's problematic culturally right now with those groups. But this is what I'm observing in the record. And there's a way to interpret it and a way to say, well, this was just a very human reaction that these people had and very understandable. Tell me a bit more about some of the
1: documentary evidence you mentioned. So we've got Hakluyt saying he's basically gone to California, but you're suggesting there's some other primary source evidence from the period, written documentary evidence, that we should consider too.
2: Well, John Drake was Drake's nephew who was on the voyage. He was like a page boy or cabin boy. And he went on the follow-up voyage, but he got captured by the Spanish and he gave two depositions. In those depositions, he clearly said that we went up as far as 48 degrees where we saw five or six islands. Now at 48 degrees, the San Juan Islands are right there and Vancouver Island. So you know, how do you square that with California? And then there was the Harley manuscript. I went to the British Library and looked at this as if it were an artifact. We have a printed version in the volumes that people usually study Drake, but I wanted to look at this exact manuscript. And I found that it had a lot of crossouts. It had editorial comments in the margins and fingers pointing, put insert text here. And I realized, my gosh, this is a draft. This is an editor's workup of a final and it matches Haklu's final printed account of Drake's voyage in many ways. And the coincidence is too incredible. And so I thought, well, this is a draft before the censors got to it. This is a draft of Francis Fletcher's diary that is being abstracted by one of Hecloot's scribes. So I wrote that in the book that I think that's what it was. And then Dean Snow, who was on your program not too long ago, he compared the handwriting of the Harley manuscript that I think was from Hecloot's desk with another document that David Ingram had. And he says, they're a match. It's the same handwriting. It's a very unique handwriting and so that was like a big chunk of the puzzle that really got landed in this place. So I am sure that was written before Hacklute, sensors in Walsingham had his hand in the whole final version. And before we see the sensors
1: interacting with it, is it therefore indicating this more northerly
2: landing? Yeah, it's said that their fair and good bay was at 44 degrees and they went as high as 48 degrees. So. We've got to turn to the
1: question of why would it matter in 1580 where Drake had gone ashore? Why would the censors be changing it to say that they were more southerly than actually seems to be the case?
2: Well, this is the crux of it, isn't it? Spain had claimed all the land to about Drake's Bay. That was all New Spain. Beyond that, it was unclaimed land. So would Drake want to leave a gap if he came in at 48 and sailed down to 44 and then swept out to the Pacific after that? There would be this gap between 44 and 38. So I think when he showed up at Queen Elizabeth's desk, he unrolled his map and said, I was here. And they said, we need to claim as much land as possible. Now, would Drake, Queen Elizabeth, and Walsingham try and trick the Spanish? Oh, yes, I think they would, to claim as much land as they could and to be a check on Catholicism spreading north. And they knew that there must be good lands there. And so by describing everything he could and claiming it and doing the first religious ceremony on the land, that was claiming the land. That was a big check on Spain. So... How
1: do we explain then when Drake arrives home, given that what he's done potentially stands to check Spain's expansion or could be used to do that? He was disavowed and subject to this official investigation and not given a hero's welcome, in other words.
2: He was not. He was knighted a few months later, but he was still being investigated by Mendoza, and there were some trials, and he was still in legal trouble for a while. And the Queen always equivocates and said that he was a pirate, but they secretly knew. I mean, most of the West Country sailors secretly knew that Drake was actually a hero. So it was still a secret, but it was maybe an open secret and Spain knew and they were just putting on a show. I'm not really sure about all that, but he wasn't celebrated. There was no parade and this was a great accomplishment for England, that they had circumnavigated the world and they had all this treasure. But the Queen didn't want to give up the treasure. And if Spain had won the case, they would have had to give up some of the treasure, I
1: suppose. So we've got this sense that he's being treated with suspicion in public, but perhaps in private. You mentioned the meetings with Elizabeth. He's having a different reception and they're waiting to see when they can deploy this evidence of his landing for potential settlement and colonization and enrichment in various ways?
2: Well, it took 10 years. Hakluyt was compiling the principal navigations in 1588. Now, we all know that was the year of the Spanish Armada, so it was finally okay for them to talk about Drake and to say what Drake had done. And it was now out-and-out war, so there was nothing to hide. And do we have any evidence about what Spain or Portugal
1: knew by the time Drake returned home.
2: When Drake was heading towards South America, he captured a Portuguese ship, and on it was a Portuguese pilot. And he took that pilot with him who helped him navigate all the way around through Magellan Strait and up into Mexico. And then he left that pilot on the Mexican coast, much to his distress. And a few years later, that pilot was in Drake's employ in Plymouth. And so I think that when the Spanish captured that pilot after Drake left him there, the pilot confessed to everything that Drake had told him he was gonna do and what he had done, and that this was an official voyage in the name of England and sponsored by Queen Elizabeth and many members of her Privy Council. So I think they knew, but they didn't have anything in writing. And so that was the important part.
1: Now, what I find absolutely fascinating about this particular piece of Elizabethan history is that it's history that's still very much alive. You've talked about the response of the tribes of Northwest America and Canada to this revelation. Can you outline some of the ways in which this question continues to vex people to this day?
2: Well, the dominant paradigm is really hard to overturn. And so I've been getting some pushback from some of the powers that be in California, which I kind of expected. But, you know, they don't address specific points. If they're going to attack my findings, then they have to do it in a way where they actually address the things I found. And then we have a discussion. But what I'm getting is we've been studying this matter for over a hundred years and it's been settled. And so I'm like, I don't think it's been settled. And then a lot of people are now saying that Drake was a slaver and so forth. And so we don't wanna have any association with him anyway. And so it's become something that people are scratching their head about and don't know what to believe or what to think. But I think eventually, people will understand that this is important and that the history books have to be rewritten and it reflects on the early history of the West Coast and history should be understood in its full glory there. And what you've said is so
1: important because we are in danger when we allow present politics to determine our response to the evidence of the past. We've got to let the evidence of the past speak to us and be guided by that rather than imposing our wish. We want him to have landed here or we don't want him to have landed here on a version of history, to create a version of history, because that just is the boost of history. I mean, these things need to be taken on their merits and you need to think about the evidence, which you've clearly done. And I suppose the debate also shapes how Drake himself is remembered. As you say, people are starting to recognise his role as a slaver, but he's had a long reputation as a pirate,
2: and now it seems that maybe he was a state-sponsored explorer. But look, Drake was a complex character. After one of his disastrous voyages with Hawkins when he was in his 20s, he disavowed slavery from then on. and. He did a lot of voyaging in Panama and around Panama where he freed slaves where he could. In fact, he had Diego, who was a free man, who was his assistant. And everyone in Panama, all the Cimarroons knew that if you got on an English ship, you were free. And so they tried to get on Drake's ship. And Drake gave them the choice when he captured a town in Panama and he walked into the courtroom and there was two men being tried for trying to burn down the town. And these were two black men and Drake gave him the choice. Do you want to join my crew or do you want to go back to your people in the woods? And one of them joined and one of them went into the woods and these were free men. He made them free. He also freed a woman named Maria who was pregnant and he led her off on an island near the Moluccas or near the Spice Islands when she was about ready to give birth with two of the black men that had joined the crew, and they gave him rice and a way to grow crops. And he was very kind and considerate. I mean, you can look at it in another way, but I think that he had a revelation and he wanted the Native Americans and the Cimarroons who he met to know that the English are different than the Spanish. They're not as cruel. They won't enslave you. We are different and we bring a better version of religion. He's very strong Protestant as well. He's very complex and we can't just say, oh, he was a slaver and dismiss him because he had a different life after he was on that mission.
1: Yes, and some people, of course, would say that he abandoned Maria on that island. So there's various different ways of looking at that evidence. Let me finish with a tricky question, if I may. Your work is an example of meticulous interdisciplinary research. And as we've said, it raises the importance of challenging accepted wisdom. So do you think in the end that it's politics that dictates that this accepted wisdom cannot be thrown off? Is it ego?
2: What is exactly going on there? I think it's a bit of both. There's some historians locally here in the Northwest that have written great books on explorers on the coast, and they don't mention Drake. So does that mean their book is no longer important or past, maybe so. I'm an anthropologist, archeologist, and so I'm treading in the world of history where they're not familiar with me there. So I'm taken with a grain of salt, I believe in the community of historians here in the Northwest. So I kind of came out of nowhere. I suppose. And they're surprised by all of this. And so it's ego, it's politics. It's what do we do with this? This is a huge deal. This is game changing. And who wants to tackle that? I don't know. The historical society is scratching their head. I mean, I think it's too complex to take on. Well, it certainly is
1: an insight into the ways in which people do not want scholars to re-examine history. And yet, on the basis of everything you've said, it seems that the contemporary evidence is pretty strong. But we shall leave that to people to make up their own minds. And to do that, of course, they're going to have to pick up a copy of your book, which is Thunder Go North, The Hunt for Sir Francis Drake's Fair and Good Bay.
0: Thank you for joining us on another episode of American History Hit. Please hit like and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a nice review there. And if you'd like to make suggestions on any future subject matter, send us an email at ahh@historyhit.com. at Thanks a lot. And we'll see you on the next new episodes dropping every Monday and Thursday. Bye for now.